This is Care Less, Do More. Today on the show, we have my dear friend Hadley Hammer as a guest. I had the pleasure of catching up with Hadley while in Chamonix. She took me to her favorite local bakery. We climbed in the rain. She sandbagged me and her brother on a massive hike, and we made it into the Alpine for an epic day of climbing and frolicking in the big mountains, where she now calls home. Hadley is the mountain partner that I want so badly. She's motivated, thoughtful, conscious, and views the mountains with a big imagination, yet always maintains a very practical approach, a true student of the mountains. I love spending time with her, and it feels extra special being separated by an ocean. Every day with Hads is a true gift. After you give this a listen, go check out HadleyHammer.com. And if you'd like to receive her newsletter, which we speak about in the podcast and I can't speak highly enough about, you should dive into the discourse, her online campfire in the mountains, a place to share stories and a glimpse into Hadley's beautiful mind. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank Darn Tough Vermont for making the best socks in the entire world. While in Chamonix, I was extra active in taking advantage of all the daylight. I ran, I climbed, I hiked in adverse weather and often wet conditions. The merino wool socks from Darn Tough play a huge role in every mountain adventure for me. They dry far quicker than cotton and regulate temperature super well. They also help prevent blisters, which I was certainly proven in Chamonix. They fit in all the right places and are thoughtfully designed to do just that. These socks are also built to last with extra material in areas of typical wear and tear. Never overlook your feet when heading out for adventures. Blisters and uncomfortable feet can turn into a real problem. We don't like problems. Set yourself up for success and get yourself a pair of darn toughs. I have a very special to me guest on the show today. Her name is Hadley Hammer. Hadley and I met here and there throughout our careers and there was always something intriguing to me about her. We weren't close by any means of having spent actual time together, but there was a magnetic pull to her thoughtful and unique approach to skiing. She made me think more about what I valued as an athlete and how I could approach skiing in a more mindful way. Hadley turned pro at the age of 25 after going to school and diving into hospitality with the goal of opening up her own hotel one day. She grew up in Jackson Hole and chased her brothers around the mountains, which came full circle when she met friends and eventually encouraged her to enter a free skiing competition. Today, after filming with TGR and other major production companies, Hadley lives in France and her approach to skiing has been ever-changing. She's a rider, a thinker, a biker, a lover of croissants, a sister, and a really incredible friend. Welcome to the show, Hadley Hammer. Thank you. I wore my croissant t-shirt for oh, you today. Oh, no way. I love that shirt. That's amazing. It's a croissant that says my love on it. <laughs> True. And you just took me to the best bakery around Chamonix, which is where we are. And it was amazing. Croissant connoisseur. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Where's your favorite one ever in the world? Oh, I think the best one I've had lately is in the south of France. Okay. Just like the perfect buttery, flaky the like moist center but yeah. still dry outside oh. do you ever go pain au chocolat that's not a croissant to me okay yep yep <laughs> i mean french's? i eat them but i feel like they're it's a separate thing yeah yeah fair but the french also eat theirs with jam and i'm a purist yep so who knows i've never eaten one with jam it's a thing the one today though was extra special it was like a nice little field trip to the nearby town to get them and i really appreciated it um so you grew up in jackson right i did grow up in jackson and how was that you were into uh figure skating and cross-country skiing yeah i'm pretty dorky would <laughs> be the start of it i have two brothers and i feel like Maybe it's that sibling relation where you want to find your own identity. And my younger brother was a World Cup, like, really good ski racer. And for me, 
I wanted to find something of my own and that was figure skating and for a while Nordic skiing. Yeah. And I loved it because my parents just, I mean, we were so lucky. They just let us chase our interests. Right. And yeah. Were you ever a ski racer? I ski raced for two years, I think. Yeah. I was really bad. My first ski race, I didn't realize like, you know, they throw pine boughs down when the visibility is bad. And I thought they would mess up my skis. So I tried to avoid them. <laughs> so I turned what was like a GS race into like a super solemn. Yeah, totally. <laughs> my parents were like, what were you, what? <laughs> I was like, I thought you weren't supposed to hit them. They were like, oh God. <laughs> That's amazing. So what what point did you start skiing at the resort a ton with your family and your brothers? We did it because my parents both worked. So it was kind of like our babysitter. Right. And we were always either like in a program or just dropped off and when they worked we would free ski yeah and then max was on the u.s ski team right yeah my yeah. younger brother was on the u.s ski team my older brother was a really good skier yeah oh. and you just found your own path yeah and then uh you went to college out of high school out of jackson still not a huge interest in big mountain skiing correct no, no interest where did you go to school i went to school in new hampshire i wanted to study hotel management with a focus on wine and so that was my like sports were never my thing Mm -hmm. I did them because I think that's what you just do growing up in Jackson but I was never very good at them and I was good at school yeah and that was kind of my focus is like I think it's too like you think being successful for me the image I had was wearing a suit like running a big hotel Mm mm-hmm power heels like yeah (laughs) yeah why the interest in hotels I think there's something really beautiful about giving someone a place to stay and I like and a meal like I think both of those things are so innately human and like a nice gift Mm -hmm. in like reality that art is somewhat gone I think because people stay for business or They've lost the appreciation for travel. Yeah. But I think at the heart of it, I love that idea that you can like provide refuge and sustenance to someone. One of my favorite hotels is in Jackson. It's uh, the Alpine Hotel. Mm. And a part of it is because of the breakfast. Yeah. And every morning as a guest, you get this incredible breakfast cooked by the people that are operating it. And I don't know, it's like so special. I agree to have that meal and it feels more homey. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I like it. Yeah. So you went to school in New Hampshire and then back to Jackson? No, straight to D.C. Oh, yeah. I took like my first job offer. I think I had two weeks between graduation and working and worked for the Four Seasons, mostly at the night shift. Oh, it was hardcore. Yeah. (laughs) And not that much fun, to be honest. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I stayed in D.C. for two years and then got fired from the second job I had there, which was such a ego blow for me. Because mm-hmm. I was always like kind of straight A's, like didn't get in much trouble, was really good at most of the things I did. And But it turned out to be like the classic, like huge blessing because I went home to Jackson after that. And I still worked in hotels and restaurants. Yeah. But what is the hotel name that you... Did Amangani. You, the Amangani. Mm-hmm. I've gone there for a glass of wine once. Yeah. Yeah. And fancy. a chess game. Yeah, High it's end. very fancy. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still... It was... It's kind of like staying at an Amman. It's a little ridiculous and a little fancy, but the heart of it is 
these places that really focus on the service and giving you like a very peaceful, unique experience, which is nice. It's where a lot of people like the celebrities that go to Jackson that, that no one wants, they don't want to be known that they're there. Mm-hmm. It's like more of a hideout place than like a show off place, I would say. Yeah, for sure. I remember walking in with uh, Aaron and we were like, let's just go there for a glass of wine. And then the second we got there, we were like, are we allowed to be here? Yeah. <laughs> like, in general, it's so quiet. Go? Yeah, totally. It's a lovely place, though. And I'm assuming that that's where you kind of got back into skiing again. Yeah, my... I feel bad because I've said this a few times, but my brother essentially told me I'd gotten fat from living in D.C., which is true. Like, you have no... I was working like 80 hour work weeks and you have no work life balance. Mm -hmm. And he was training at a gym for ski racing still. And he was like, you should come not get skinny, but essentially like just get healthy and have like a more balanced life. And at that gym, like Griffin Post and Crystal Wright and Jess McMillan were all training for the Freeride World Tour. And so I was introduced to them and what they were doing. And they were just like, oh, you can just sign up, which is I feel like a part of free skiing comps that gets overlooked is there's not that many things with such low barrier to entry. Right. Like you just needed to sign up and have a fast internet service. And obviously if you like don't know how to ski, you wouldn't make it very far, but you could at least make it to the start gate. Totally. And I kind of love that part of the free skiing comps because I think there's so much in life that you have to have been doing for a long time or yeah, there's so many barriers where that was just like, okay, I'll sign up. I had no business. How did it go? Terrible. I got last place. (laughs) And then, or no, the first year I broke my back. Oh my gosh. Teaching myself how to jump off cliffs. So I like signed up for comps and then went to one in South America, got lost last, which was in like August. And then the broke my back in like December of that year, starting like the next round of competitions. And I would imagine breaking your back like that would deter you from continuing on. But what if you were you... sane? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Here we go. We're getting into it now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it like doubled down. I like quit my nice, well-paying, steady job at Amangani and was like, I want to do this. And I had the support of the gym owner at that gym, Rob Shaw, who is such a unique individual. And he was like, yeah, we'll just get you stronger and get you back. And he did. Yeah. And it was awesome. That's awesome. So then you went into year two. Yeah, I went into year two and I was so stubborn about training and approaching it. Like I would follow, there's the like, what are they called? Uh, The Air Force in Jackson is like the underground, like hardcore skiers. And I would follow them without them, I think, ever noticing down like the tram and I would just chase a little bit behind them and each day I was like okay if I can keep up with them or if I can like follow them or I would time myself or have the lifties there was one lifty on the sublet lift in Jackson and he would time me and I'd ride the chair up and then ski one of the steep chutes and come down and each time I like wanted to be faster than my last and so I just did that for a whole season and then I guess at the end of the season I made it on a podium wow no way yeah this has always intrigued me about you is your approach to how you like improve. I feel like you have a system. 
whether yeah. it's like whether it's proven a yeah. proven system or you're just making it up and you're like this is what I'm gonna do. But one day I was with you the first time we ever actually skied together on Tiwanot and there was like this really rocky down climb slash traverse and it was super technical with crampons on and your ski boots and you were flying through it. And I was like, my jaw hit the floor. I was like, Hadley's so good at moving through the mountains like this. And then you told me, what did you do to train for that? I like specifically just walked around ridges with crampons on or like the bottoms of a lot of ice climbs where there's the sort of apron of ice just walking. And just practicing like one specific skill set over and over again and not doing it like not going on a climb, but just like practicing that skill set. It kind of like made me like realize that there can be a different approach to the way you get better at certain aspects of skiing. Yeah, I think it's because I am not that good (laughs) of an athlete, like inherently I and it's something I've come to terms with quite a few different times, but. I always had my little brother, both of my brothers actually to look at and they just move really well. And Max is still the best skier I've ever seen. And it, whether they were like surfing or skimboarding or skiing or sledding or like any physical activity we did as kids, their mo- movement and motion was always really fluid. And mine was not like I'm clumsy and stiff and inflexible. And so I think I have to. Mm-hmm. And it just works because I like it, too. Like, I am so motivated by feeling progress right. in myself. Yeah. Well, you could have fooled me on that day. <laughs> you and not. Because I was like, I don't know, I fancy myself a relatively decent climber at times, at least in that point in my life when we had our ski day. And I was like, whoa, I need to go walk on some ridges with crampons, which yeah. I couldn't find in Tahoe necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> That's the benefit of living in Europe right now is like I can take the midi up here in Chamonix and literally walk off into a ridge with no like hiker approach. Yeah. It's quite incredible. Um, Okay. Reversing back to what we were talking about. So you get on the podium. You're two of competing? Was the end of my first year, I think, after breaking my back. And then walk me through how that like trajection played out in your ski career then the next year uh I did really well well enough on the qualifying tour to qualify for the world tour mm-hmm. so it was sweet it was like two years spent on the qualifying tour which I was psyched for because you learn I was like learning how to ski at that point like yeah feeling the front of the boot with my shin and like very basic things that everyone mostly knew how to do Um, and it was so fun. It was such a fun group of people to be around. I was in my mid twenties and you felt like you were building these communities. And then I got on the world tour and I spent two years on the world tour and I had like a go big or go home approach to it. Yes. And I went home eventually, but (laughs) I was really psyched on the times that the skiing worked and like taking big risks worked were really satisfying. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, and it was kind of a bummer because at that point in time, I think one part of being a female that doesn't get talked about is because there's not very many of us, it's harder to take a risk. Because if you take a risk and you fall, for instance, competing, if there's only six of you, you're kind of screwed. Where with guys, if there's 30 of them, there's like more allowance for shuffling within 
Right. You can crash, but then you can still win. And there's no one playing safe. And I think when there's so few, it's just smart to play safe a lot of the time. Um, so at the end, I didn't play safe at all. <laughs> and I didn't requalify, but that year I'd gotten an invitation from TGR to film because I had jumped off some pretty big stuff in Jackson to prepare for the tour and I caught their eye and yeah so I instead of requalifying for the tour I switched to filming with TGR. That's amazing I think you touched on something that I've always because I watched the Freeride World Tour and I always watch the women as like the first thing that I'm going to and I remember there being a lot of times where I was like like Jackie Peso I would watch because she was a really close friend and she was a go big or go home kind yeah. of a gal. Clearly, and sometimes it would work out. She would take the risk. And her whole mentality was like, I think as women too, sometimes we can have, and I'm not saying Jackie does this, but I know I have had a chip on my shoulder or like something to prove that I really wanted to prove that women were skiing at that level or that we could hit big cliffs. And and that was Jackie's approach for sure. She was like hitting the same cliff as her now husband. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was amazing to watch. But as someone who wanted to watch her succeed, my advice was always like, just tone it back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But like someone in that mindset doesn't want to hear that, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Like they just want to go and do it. Um, but that's fascinating. And, it, and yeah, with less women, like it was totally if you played it safe, you were going to podium. Yeah. For sure. It's cool to see because I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah. But I think it took the entire collective. It took like three girls or four girls being like, oh, we're going to throw down. And then you had to. Yeah. Versus like playing it safe. Though I would say the girls that I skied with were all so talented. So that was where I was more just bummed because I was like, wait, you guys are so good. Yeah. Let's show the world that we're all really good at skiing. Totally. It's interesting too. I've read that like women uh, can, if they see something, they can apply it more as opposed to like, um, if you see it, you can believe it as opposed to like, I'm just going to visualize this and do something for the first time. Yeah. And so when we see other women in that position, it motivates you to like do it. But I think that like, it's just a different process and a different approach and not to say that it hinders our progress, but I think that like, yeah, it doesn't like play to our advantage necessarily. Um, but yeah, for me, like some of my most successful times have been out in the mountains with other women and watching them and being super inspired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So then you're, you get the invite with TGR and you're like, I'm moving away from competitions at that point. Yeah. I think it was such a big opportunity. So it was like, Oh, I should definitely say yes to that. That seemed like the path that had been paved in front of me was you compete to get noticed by film companies to film. Did you have sponsors at that point? Yeah, I had sponsors. I mean, I ironically last year was the last year or the year before was the first time I made enough money. Like the money I was making two years ago was the same as what I was getting paid when I left my real job no way <laughs> so, wow that was kind of a full circle and I feel like yeah I've never been overly well-paid skiing but I was th- at that point able to like sort of stop the like window washing game once I s- started filming with TGR yeah which was nice and how did that go for you I didn't go that well it's something that I think about a lot I th- and I think I've deduced it to like, as I said before, like, I'm obsessed with progress, and I didn't feel it with TGR. And 
that's mostly on me. I think I didn't figure out how I could get rid of my performance-based fear filming with them. Because that's a way different fear than like, I'm standing on the top of the mountain. That shit's kind of scary sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I can work through that where I didn't work through my performance-based fear enough. And I, th- I feel like in some ways I wasted some of those opportunities. But, I mean, waste is probably incorrect. It was just a learning experience for me. But I always just was like, I got to nail the shot. And I feel like when you feel like you have to nail the shot, it made me rigid. Versus competing, it was like, I wonder if I can do this. Like, I wonder if I can pull that off. And it was so curiosity-based and not, like, expectation-based. And so much of filming with TGR, I just felt really stiff. And then you get in this cycle of, like, stiff skiing, and then you would crash, and then that would feed into this, like, oh, I'm not good enough to have this experience. And like you said, I was with some trips where the guys were just, like, on a different level and on a different level of skiing. Like, my first trips were, like, Dane Tudor and Nick McNutt doing, like, huge triple vertical axis, all crazy tricks. And I'm like, I will never actually be there. I don't have the interest to be there, so I know I'll never get there. And so I don't think I ever let myself shine filming with TGR, which is, yeah, is what it is. But it eventually, like, I felt like I got off that course. Yeah. Once I realized that. I think you nailed it on the head there. Because when you're filming, like, I've literally heard cameramen being like, well, if, like, you bring an athlete out there and they're not landing stuff, then you're, like, not getting shots, then they're not going to get the invite back. But to progress, you have to try. And you're not going to land everything. But I've felt that same, like, um, yeah, you're just, like, your progression kind of, it doesn't stop per se, but it can it can definitely plateau when yeah. you start filming because you want to nail everything and you don't want to try new things. And there's a time and a place for that. But similarly, too, like, I would compare myself to the guys on the trip because I was never had another woman to film with. And then I remember being on a trip and being like, okay, if Cody's hitting that size of a cliff, I probably, like, should hit something, like, more within my wheelhouse which is going to be smaller for sure Mm -hmm. and so I would like kind of downplay like the lines that I chose in comparison because I was comparing my skiing to them and it just like hindered progression yeah yeah it's a not you almost I wish I could reverse time and like have that conversation with myself of like go be bold enough to ski what you think you could have skied yeah at that time I wish I could reverse time and just be with you out there at that time. <laughs> that would <'Cause>, be fun. <laughs> yeah, because that's ultimately when I started feeling more progression is when women started filming together. Hmm. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't the production company that set that up. It was like I would beg to go on trips with different women and yeah. be out there. And oftentimes I'd get shut down. Um, like the team would be like, we only need one girl. Yeah. And that was like also a deterrent too. Um but then, like, once I finally made my own trip with women, that's the first time I felt empowered in the mountains. Yeah. And that empowerment can do so much. Whether, like, you have someone doing something that you feel like is attainable or you have someone that, like, believes that you can do it. Yeah. Like, I've had one trip where a guy told me he didn't think I was capable of doing it, and it, like, haunts me to this day. And it, I am going to go back and do it because I feel like that chip sits on you. Yeah. But I've always believed that 
being critical of someone in that way is so lazy, actually, because you maybe are right, but it doesn't do anything to help them. Right. Where if the conversation instead could be like, okay, you're not there yet, but what do you think you would need to get there? And how can we like do that together? Then like, I would imagine all these skiers being lifted up even higher. Such a good point. Like that's like the difference of criticism and constructive criticism. Yeah. Yeah. So you filmed with them for how many years? Quite a lot, actually, like four or five, Mm -hmm. I think. And at the end of the day, what made you move on? Um, I think it, I had applied with the North Face. We get to do these like expedition proposals and I had decided like, okay, I'm not having that much fun (laughs) filming and what am I doing? Like this life is awesome, but if it's not fun, like there's a lot of downsides to the ski career. And so for me, the upside always has to be like enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of made this conscious decision of like, I want to go back to doing things my way and having like trips with people I pick. And I think realizing that, okay, if I'm progress based, specific lines feels like it speaks to me more because it's a progression of like, okay, I have this dream line and you have to figure out all the ways that you're going to get there. Whether it's like the climbing skills or the skiing skills or the logistics of the expedition. And so I was like, I'm going to start doing more of that. And it was sweet because North Face took like the first expedition proposal I had given them. And it was going to be to Russia. And it was like a dream team of Lusty, Hillary, Kit, and I. And in the end, Hillary and Kit had backed out. So it was just going to be Lusty and I. And I was so psyched for it. And then, yeah, unfortunately, my partner passed away a month prior to us leaving. Mm. And Lucy's shoulder was pretty bunged up and her knee was pretty bunged up. So we ended up pulling the whole expedition. But yeah, I still feel like stoked that I had set myself on that trajectory of instead of being like, I'm going to follow the path that other people set, which was awesome and the opportunities were awesome, but actually good opportunities and the right opportunity are very different. Yeah. I think what you're kind of like the change in your approach would be like more of a goal setting mindset Mm -hmm. rather like I realize this through hanging with Emily Harrington because climbing is so goal based. You're like, I'm going to go climb this specific climb or I want to climb this specific grade. And then you take the steps to get there and it motivates you and you're driven by that. And I was always like, oh, I've never really set a goal in skiing. Like, and I always kind of was like, yeah, my like approach to skiing is not goal-based, but then the first goal-based trip I went on was Denali. And it was like a friend's trip. We didn't film or like take professional photos by any means, but that drove me to like garner that skill set to get there. And that was a cool, like very intriguing, different approach. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, I wish I, I think when I was filming, it was hard to relate to like why I was in a certain area. And I think I have to feel those things. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a bit of a feeler person and like you could go to these zones and just be like, yeah, this is really beautiful, but I have no idea why I'm here. And like with mountains and finding specific descents, it's like a attraction and there's like this feeling with it. Yeah. And I'm, I love that side of it. Yeah. And kind of need it, I think. Yeah. Do you feel like you've, 
kind of reinvented your approach to skiing on multiple different occasions and that it's kept you super engaged? Yeah, I think I just wrote a piece about this and it was funny because the, the writing was starting with, I wanted to write about like what bravery looks like in skiing and where the piece ended up in which I, the reason why I like writing is because it kind of helps you find out what you're feeling. And the piece ended up of me being like, oh, I like skiing because of all of these things and this and this and this. And I like it because of the fear and I like it because of the joy and I like it because of all the highs and lows. And I've realized that it's just the vehicle for me to participate in life. Mm-hmm. And life is always changing, so my skiing will always change. I love that. And I'm psyched about that Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> That's a really cool place to land with that. I feel like the constant change and development and skill set, too, allows you to do more in the mountains, yeah. which is also more engaging. Yeah. And, like, I'm pretty sure we both think that skiing is a lifelong pursuit 100 <laughs> yeah like it's a lifestyle it's uh it is a sport but it's more to me defined by like this is like one of my biggest loves mm-hmm. yeah yeah and the love gives back way more when I let it be fluid and when I let it be what it wants and the times where I've like had sticking points with my career of being really frustrated was when I was trying to get an emotion out of skiing mm and when I just let skiing like present it, whatever emotion it wants to that day, yeah. then it ends up being like, I mean, it's the same when you ski, like if you are rigid and forceful and like pushing against the mountain, it's not going to feel fun. But if you just like loosen the shocks and like let everything just kind of roll down the hill, yeah, it works out. Which I agree about your brother, Max, too. Yeah. Like, watching him ski in person is so fluid and beautiful. So fluid. It's a unique turn. Like, it's outstanding, actually. Mm-hmm. My jaw hit the floor. There's not... Because I love watching, like, a really good snowboard turn. Yeah. And Max was one of the first skiers that I was like, oh, wow. That is just, like, it stands out to me. Like, it's a beautiful, beautiful. thing. Beautiful. He's yeah. fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He even talks about it, like, when he... Because he has his, like, how to learn how to ski website. Yeah. And he was beta testing it with me and he was told me this like he's like okay so I want to pretend like you're stranded in the middle of the mountains and you're like in this cabin but you got to get down because you have no more food I was like what kind of how to ski course is this (laughs) and then he's like and then you have like three tools like a ball and a stick and I'm like okay I kind of see where you're going but that's his whole thing is he's like you are a ball when you're skiing. Like if you're skiing well, you're a ball because balls like roll over stuff. Whereas if you're a square, like obviously if you imagine a square block going down a mogul field, it's going to like dink, 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 dink and be all clunky. But if you do a ball, the ball like is catching trannies and like cruising down. So that's, that's where his like thinking is and why his turns end up being so nice. <laughs> yeah. Do you think his skiing has like inspired your skiing as well? Oh, a hundred percent. If I could ski like Max, then I feel like I'd be at my like pinnacle of existence for, in skiing. <laughs> Who's your biggest influence? Ooh. In skiing? Yeah. That's a good question. Dude, everyone. Yeah. I think. That's I a get, good answer. Yeah. It's a weird sport, and anyone that decides that this is going to be fun, I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> like, in this together. Yeah. And 
you know, like last winter, was it last winter? I went ski touring with my friend's uncle who's 70 and we skied the Entrave shoulder here in Cormier, which is like a proper steep skiing descent and like ridge climb up to it. And the guy is 70 and cruised the whole thing. And you're just like, that's sick. Mm -hmm. Like I'm inspired by like a two-year-old skiing and a 90-year-old skiing and everyone in between. I just think... I agree. The participation is awesome. Especially in that multi-generational way. Yeah. I think that's really cool. For sure. I think we got to stop thinking that your 20s and 30s are like the pinnacle of your existence as a human, but specifically in sports. Tell me more about that. I kind of like (laughs) briefly talked about this the other day, but I want to hear your, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I just think humans' bodies are going to move. You're meant to move your whole life. And we should celebrate that and celebrate the ways in which the human body moves. Like my dad was really sick for the last few years and he was still like by the end he had broken his hip and it was really hard for him to walk. But it was cool that he like was motivated by walking down a hallway at the end of his life. And like I think we're motivated by movement and we should celebrate that motivation at all stages and it will look different at all stages. And I have some fun friends here in Chamonix that are like my friend's moms and they crush. And you're just like, oh, this is awesome. You're like 60 or my mom just biked up the Vontu, which is a freaking crazy Tour de France hill climb. And you're just like, cool, you're 70 and you're still biking up hills. Like, yeah, I don't know. I think we should celebrate that movement across the board. And I think we equate too much. I mean, I should. This is a bit of a soapbox, but. I think we equate like suffering and danger too much with success. And I think success in sports and outdoor participation does not always have to be like what was the gnarliest, like hardest, scariest thing. For sure. Like, and I think the older you get, you start to realize that. I agree. And yeah. Yeah. I think we should learn from those older people. <laughs> For sure. Well, we started talking about that conversation because you had mentioned a short film about an older woman, correct? Maybe. Yeah. There's one mountain bike film that I believe Patagonia did that celebrates uh, this lady who lives on the oh, North yeah. Shore in Vancouver mm-hmm. and yeah. she's older and she's ripping on her mountain bike yeah. and it for me being younger like it very much intrigued me because I was like this is my future yeah like I can still do this when I'm older and I agree like some of my main touring partners are 60 or above and I gained so much like Bonnie Zellers yeah. she oh, I, when I was like who's your favorite and like your biggest influence like she is one of those to me because she's lived this active lifestyle but I agree like if we as a community and an industry lifted up these women who are older Mm -hmm. and men too for that matter but like celebrate that age yeah because we're speaking to the youth right now through most of the content that comes out 100 percent. yeah i actually last night here in sham got to watch um a short film it was only six minutes long about one of i think she was the 12th uh, oh she's amazing yeah yeah isabel isa um she's amazing and actually during the film i like i teared up because of her accomplishments as she was like moving through this path of becoming a professional mountain guide and it's so inspiring to me Mm -hmm. like probably more so than those like dangerous life-threatening ascents or whatever they are yeah I think when I was younger that influenced me more 
like 100%. right I wanted to be that and I didn't understand like the concept of sport jevity like longevity yeah. <laughs> within sport and then now exactly as you said as I'm getting older that is so much more intriguing to me and how do I do this for the rest of my life mm-hmm. and to do it for the rest of my life I, I have to like reel it in a little bit and not be as injury prone right yeah but it's a fine balance because you still have that within you that Mm -hmm. you want to progress and you want to like and we can still progress there's that that definitely doesn't mean that there's a glass ceiling we can't break through yeah yeah but I think that I mean I'm the same if you like throw me on top of something and I'm motivated to like ski something risky I'm probably going to but I think it needs that balance and yeah. like, I don't know, life is so awesome. So I want to do it as long as possible. Yeah. And I want to be skiing through that. Yeah. As long as possible. Yeah. And like mountain robbing and yeah. Totally. <laughs> like, I don't know, being here in Cham too, I think the first day I landed, you recommended a hike and it was my first and I was, it was like a run hike to shake off the jet lag and I just needed to be injected into the mountains and just being surrounded by so much beauty here it's more accessible to get up high into the mountains and it inspires you to do that. What was your draw and why did you move to Europe? Um, I moved when my partner died because that was our plan and I kind of just needed to live that plan Mm -hmm. through and see it through. And I stayed because of the quality of life here is amazing. And I've been able to progress so many of my mountain skills. I have such a good community, but the pace is awesome and maybe I just like live in my own bubble anyways but I don't feel as rushed Mm -hmm. around life and I don't feel as stressed around life and that's really important to me and like things are like I have a really simple life here I think and I think it's a place where you can live out a very simple life where you're just in the mountains or you know we were talking about it because you experienced this last year like I have dinner with my friends all the time Like you just pop by each other's houses and sit down and have dinner or like pop over for tea. And there's so much social connection entered into every single day. And I love that. And the mountains are beautiful and really fun to explore. And it feels pretty endless. And yeah, I love it. Yeah. One of the things that caught my attention in a previous conversation was talking about uh, throughout COVID, how you felt like it was far more stress-free here. Mm -hmm. And I think what you said was that there was actually more regulations and what you could and couldn't do, but it was very black and white. Yeah. Like there were rules, they weren't suggestions. Yeah. And in the States, I remember people kind of deciphering the suggestions in whichever way they wanted to. But it made it really stressful. Oh yeah. To come to my own conclusion. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there, like, I love freedom and I love human freedom, but I feel like there are just so many of us on this planet, and you just need some way to order that, or it's chaos. And rules can be restrictive, but rules can actually give you a lot of freedom. Because I mean, I think we were talking about because I would come back I was living in Innsbruck we had really strict lockdowns during COVID like I couldn't leave my house lockdowns and I then after those lockdowns traveled back to see my like very very sick dad and it was so stressful because no one was following rules and my getting COVID would have serious consequence and 
that was really hard to handle where in Europe it was like, okay, these are the rules and that's just the rules. And none of my brain space was occupied of like, should I go to this dinner? Should I not go to dinner? Should I go to the store? Should I not go to the store? And actually like you can think of it as a restriction or you can think of it as a freedom mm-hmm. because in Innsbruck I had like freedom then of like, okay, I can't do all these things, but here's all the other things I can do and not have to make like a thousand choices in a day. You nailed it on the head with like, you don't have as many choices. Yeah. Like Steve Jobs had one outfit, yeah. a black turtleneck and jeans. And therefore every morning he wasn't deciding what to wear. Yeah. Less decisions, more efficiency. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, Jimmy Chin's the same way. Decision fatigue is so hardcore and so big in the States. Like I remember my boyfriend, David, like when he would come and go to the grocery store and look at the selection of granola bars he was just like what (laughs) is this like how do you pick and there's so many and like I just want someone to tell me like here like this is the one you want same like going to a bagel shop or like you know and that's what what I feel like my life is here is like I know what I'm gonna eat for breakfast I know when I go to the bakery like it's this many things I'm gonna pick like the croissant obviously but like there's just less decisions I have to make throughout the day. And like the stores here aren't open all the time. Like my grocery store is open from seven to 12 and five to seven. And that just means like I organize around that. Yeah. And it creates like a simple movement of my existence, which is nice. I had a really hard time making decisions in the bakery this morning. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That was chaotic. (laughs) There was so many good things. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree if I was here more like that, it'd be easy. Yeah, I got a croissant and a quiche. It was great. And a Queen of Mon. Yeah. It's all like flour and butter yeah. mixed in somehow. Was uh, dating David what brought you to Austria in the first place? Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. And it's, uh, I would say Austria is the most underrated European mountain country. Mm-hmm. The food is incredible. The infrastructure, especially around skiing, like it's their national sport and the chairlifts and the resorts, like everything is so dialed. And, you know, Chamonix is awesome for steep skiing and alpine climbing, but the free riding kind of sucks because mm-hmm. it's so steep and intense. Right. And like the weather can be really intense here where like the free riding in Austria is so fun and endless and it's beautiful and the people are super friendly and it's nice and small. Mm-hmm. And I loved living there. How was your relationship, how did your relationship influence your movement in the mountains? Um, David was the most thoughtful mountain athlete I'd ever interacted with. And I think about that a lot. Like he talked about paradox of choice. Like his apartment was nearly empty. He didn't have a lot of stuff. He was really specific about the stuff he used. Like anything that came into his house had a, there was a thought process. Anything, you know, his iPhone camera roll. Like I have like 40 billion photos on mine and he had like, I don't know, a thousand photos. Like at the end of each day, he would like go through and clean it out. Like he was just like really thoughtful about everything. And I think about that a lot when I'm skiing or in the mountains, it's like, how can I approach this more thoughtfully and mm-hmm. more specifically? And he thought a lot about like risk and 
ethics too around his climbing, which mm-hmm. I was really inspired by. Yeah. Like he wouldn't just go do something to do something. Right. And I think he, we had a lot of conversations about like you as an athlete, he believed had to have a purpose behind being an athlete. And it could be like, I just want to be the best, but he's like, that never really holds up. Right. Like, what's your like real reason behind what you're doing? What was his reason? You know, I didn't ask him. <laughs> no way. Um, I wish I did. We had talked about mine quite a bit, but I never asked him. What's yours? At the time it was, and I think it still mostly is, was to show people that you can do more than you think. Mm-hmm. Through the fact that like I was never that naturally good, but because I could apply myself and like focus I could become better. Yeah. And I still believe that. Yeah. Equally so, I think there's some, like, barriers that the world has set up that prevent a lot of people from getting there. Yeah, for sure. I think that having purpose within your career and within your life is something that drives you forward, and I I agree, like, to find that purpose, which takes some thought. Yeah. Because I don't feel like we often ask ourselves those bigger questions. Do you think you have a purpose? Yeah. Um, I was asked this by a Navy SEAL. Okay. What's your purpose in life and what's your purpose in your job? Yeah. And it, and I was like, oh, in life and in my job. These are big questions I yeah. should know the answers to, but I hadn't at the time because I hadn't taken the time to think about it. And I think initially when I became a pro skier, I thought of it, I thought of being a professional athlete as being quite the selfish pursuit. And it deterred my ambition to continue and and I was like I'm sponsored by these people and and I think a lot of people have that perspective actually um that you're like spending other people's money you're traveling the world and your your life is great and it's fulfilling and and it's amazing and yeah you're living the dream which we are I think but at the same time I had to recognize that you can inspire other people to love the outdoors and um for me at that time I really felt like if I built a big enough name within our sport that I could do more good. Yeah. And um, whether that be through philanthropy or raising awareness or whatever on a local level, on an international level, like that really has inspired me over time and continues to inspire me is how can you give back through your career that you've established? I think that drove me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I I like can't get down with the like, oh, you just have, like, this selfish dream job. Because, A, yeah, for sure, it's a dream. We're all inherently selfish because we are just a self, and that's half of it. As (laughs) humans, yeah. As a human, that's how you walk through the world is as yourself. But also, I think it's the end of this, like, really beautiful book about national parks, but the guy talks about how some of us, yeah, wish – we could be brain surgeons, but we're not like we are just skiers, but we're not being just a skier. doesn't not have value to the world. I don't think like, I think being a skier can show you how partnerships work. It can show you how community works. It can show you how like a love of nature works. Like it can be a vehicle to show you so many different things about being a human. Yeah. I'm all like pro yeah. go skiers. <laughs> well, even like thinking about, cause like my biggest give back, I would say in my entire career was starting and founding uh, safe as clinics, 
or teaching people about avalanche awareness um, in person alongside uh, Jackie Peso, Ingrid, and uh, Elise Sogstead. And um, that teaches you group dynamics and communication and how to like really build a team. Yeah. And that and trust. And I think I relate so much in life to avalanche rescue scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I love hearing about your purpose. And then when David passed, like, I don't want to dive in this too much, but can you just talk about how that like affected you and kind of changed the, I don't know if it did change the trajectory of your life or. or, Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, it like feels like my life has a very distinct, like pre David and post David and it changed. It felt like it changed everything Mm -hmm. slowly over time. I find that I'm still me which is somewhat reassuring in ways but I think the biggest thing is like that curtain of control just fully drops and you're like oh our hands are not on this wheel Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like a lot of this stuff happens and you have no control over what's going on and where you're where like my life has led me I work hard and I'm focused and thoughtful but I can accept that like I've ended up where I've ended up because of exterior things and the like mystery of life has brought me where it's brought me. Um, but it's, yeah, that control and I, my approach to the mountains is totally different. And I think what we do is really dangerous. And that's been like a reckoning that's sort of evolved over the last few years and kind of hit its pinnacle this winter, I would say. And maybe that was also because my dad died and Hillary died in the fall. But this winter, I was just like, fuck, this shit is so dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for swearing. But it's just like really dangerous and for me, not worth it. Yeah. And that is, and it was an interesting place to arrive because I think when I talk to my friends that aren't in the ski world, they're like, duh. Like, that's such a healthy reaction if you lose the love of your life and now, like, maybe 10 different friends to the mountains. Like, you're putting, like, A plus B together or 1 plus 2 together. And that's a good reaction that, okay, like, step back a little bit. This stuff is riskier than you think. Um, And they're right, but it's tricky because I'm still really motivated by some dangerous things in the mountains and I feel I was skiing with a friend here at the beginning of the season my friend Sophie in a really steep core and she got down and she was like I hate this stuff and I was like I love this stuff like I love the engagement I think I get when I like have to be that focused have to be that on it and so I'm very much in the throngs of figuring out what that means for my skiing because I don't, I want to be way more conscious about the risks I'm taking, but I also need to fulfill like myself as a human, as a skier. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I am like in the mud, I would say, mm-hmm. of figuring that out. Cause there was a few times this winter where I would like fully freeze and panic and have panic attacks and just be like, whoa, this is worse hanging it out there a lot. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I think that comes with age and the loss of friends and people that you love for sure. Like I can't count on two hands on 
if I had four hands, I couldn't count on four hands how many people I've lost to the mountains. And I think that people either go one of which way, right? They yeah. like back off or they dive in deeper. And it's really hard when you feel both poles mm-hmm. to figure out where you sit. And I find that oftentimes I don't know where I sit until I'm in the situation. Yeah. But I think you and I have gone back and forth <laughs> much thanks to your discourse, which I want to dive into. But uh, I remember you inspired me to like, well, first of all, read The Art of Freedom, mm-hmm. right? Is that that's yeah. the book about the Polish climber. Yeah. And his approach to the mountains was fascinating to me. And his philosophy about, you know, it's it's about the journey and the people that you're with rather than like check, like a checklist of yeah. summits and firsts and whatnot. And uh, I think he was nominated and they were going to award him with the Pio de Lay. Yeah the most extravagant award in climbing three times. And the first two times he said no, because yeah. he didn't want the recognition. This was for his soul. It was his love. And the third time they were like, we're going to give it to you whether you show up. Yeah. And so he was like, well, I'd look like a total asshole if I didn't show yeah. up. So then he showed up and he accepted it. And I think he was honored by it. But at the end of the day, it was never about the fame for him. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as a professional athlete, it can get pretty muddy. So muddy. Yeah. Yeah. It's muddy and it's a tricky thing to be muddy about because we're not basketball players like the consequence is death or injury yeah and so yeah the other thing that's really fucked me up <laughs> was uh seeing a presentation from a really good friend Zahan Billamorier and he had basically like a math problem that showed you the percentage of likeliness that you would die in the mountains based on how much time you spent in the mountains and it was one in four for professionals and people whether that be guides or everyday recreationalists or professionals um that you would pass yeah and I did the math and I was like that's pretty spot on and I started crying during that presentation just recognizing it like when it's put forward in such a way that's like a yeah, you're a one in four mm-hmm. opportunity to pass. It's like, it's a bit more tangible. Yeah, it's really, and it's, I guess I want to say two things. One, like those consequences are real. Like it has been four-ish or five years now since David died and I feel it every day. Yeah, And I miss him like crazy all the time. And it's not just me and his family. Like, it bums me out that he doesn't. Like, I still think life is so rad, and he doesn't get to live it. And who knows what the afterlife is or what all of this is. None of us know. But it, like, bums me out because I'm just like, man, he had so much more mm-hmm. to do. And that consequence is real. And I don't think I spent most of my ski career, like, really oblivious to that, mm-hmm. which was fine because I think I couldn't have gotten done some of the things I would have done without that naiveness Mm -hmm. but I don't have that gift anymore of or like that luxury of turning it off but is it a luxury sometimes I think like yeah I think some of the adventures I've done if I would have known what a mistake would have led to I probably wouldn't have done it right but I'm glad I did them but now I just can't do that but it's also helping me find ways in which I still can love skiing, which has been awesome. And like kind of returns you to the root of skiing. And what I talked about before is like, it doesn't actually have to be hardcore for me to have fun. 
and like seeing friends get like a little bit I have a lot of girlfriends here that aren't like hardcore skiers and having their being a participant to their best day which maybe is just like skiing the mare to glass here which is can be quite boring for me but when I'm a participant to their success it's so fun yeah and so you're like oh skiing still is like everything else I think that's a really healthy approach too for like mental health yeah is finding the joy in not the mundane but something that might be mundane for you there's still so much joy there Mm -hmm. and I like to always reflect at the end of the season and look back on what days do I really remember and it's less about the big cliffs or the lines like that sometimes it's very much about that yeah but also it's about like taking my mom ski touring or (laughs) you know teaching my cousin's daughter how to ski on the bunny hill like those days really stand out to me and and having that reflection and recognizing that has helped me reshape like yeah I'm not as attached to the outcome anymore Mm. and Mm -hmm. I feel like as professional athletes you're defined by your successes so much going back to also lifting the people up who are doing the firsts and the gnarliest stuff and it's like living on the edge which is maybe like the easiest thing to it's tangible right it's tangible yeah um but simultaneously like what about all the rest yeah there's so many different days that you have and emotions you go through like i hope that as a culture we can shift that a little bit yeah and celebrate that more 100% i feel like that has been the biggest shift of like through this like really challenging year, I think the answer I got out of it was like, oh, this is your new purpose. It's mm-hmm. like, I want to be like the captain of everything else. Like, yeah. I still want to go have those big days, but I think they probably will be more personal days. Like no film crew, like go have your objective and do it for yourself. But I want to like champion every other moment in skiing. Yeah. Because... They're so fun. I mean, I think one of the best days I had on skis, my friend didn't have her bindings on tight enough and she double ejected all day. And we 100% could have fixed it like the first run, but it was a huge powder day in Jackson and it was more fun to for her to just like double eject and like tumble through the powder and us like searching for her skis. We did it literally all day. And it's like, that's skiing too yeah and I think that's the thing it's not either or it is like all of it all of it for sure I want to participate in all of it yeah yeah I think that yeah I mean even watching Jeremy Jones and his philosophy towards the mountains is like well first of all there's no bad days it's just shitty attitudes yeah (laughs) it's kind of one of them and there's no bad snow it's just what you make of it yeah so he's out there every single day and no matter the conditions and much like my mom, actually, she skis every single day, oh. even if it's for one run. Yeah. Because it gives her something. Yeah. And she's refueled by it. And I'm like, damn, that's so inspiring to me. That's what I strive to have that attitude all the time, which I think I do. But I think now I'm also of the mindset that rest is a very productive way <laughs> yeah. to spend my time, too. <laughs> I know it's so annoying, but it's so true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, And so after David passed, you lived in Innsbruck for a little bit longer and then came here to France. Mm -hmm. I was in Innsbruck for like two or three years. Mm -hmm. Really bad memory. And then I've been in Sham now for like almost two years. Yeah. Year and a half. Yeah. And it's awesome and hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) It's like 
a French version of Jackson, I would say. Totally. Like you still get like the ego and the attitudes and like, what did you do today? And all this stuff. And I just kind of like keep walking straight to the bakery. Yeah. But (laughs) yeah, it's a cool to be in this place that is so steeped in history with the mountains. And that part I really love. It's just like you see the scale of time here really easily, whether it's like looking at the Drew or the Midi and like imagining the first people to do it. It's really easy to imagine it because there's museums here and like pictures everywhere of like people in their leather boots, like on each other's shoulders, like, (laughs) oh, can't reach that. Just like get on my shoulders. And also with the glaciers, you get this sense of deep time here. Yeah. Because the glaciers, as sad as it is, or like deeply depressing to see them melting, it also reminds you that like you're getting to see a part of history that was like hundreds of thousands of years old. Like that ice has been here for so long. And that's a really nice perspective for me to always have of like that deep time of like, these rocks and this tree and this ice have existed longer than I could imagine and will exist longer than I will be on this planet. And it's cool yeah, to be in that like connection. There's an energy here too. Yeah. That's like hard to ignore. <laughs> it's very <laughs> obvious. It's strong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's inspiring. And like I said, like it made me want to inject into the mountains, like ASAP. Yeah. I could not wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though I was like, yeah, slept a couple hours on the <laughs> yeah. plane. It was like, let's go. It's special. And even yesterday, like I did a hiking photo shoot and I am not much of a hiker, although I've been hiking every day. I've yeah. been here and a little <laughs> bit of climbing, um, but just being in those spaces, like mm-hmm. it's it's extravagant and it's it's beautiful and yeah. yeah it makes your mind wander into what is possible and what you could do it's yeah. really a very cool feeling it is it's inspiring i get that at home but not as much i think it's just like right in your face here totally i mean the valley for people that haven't been here is like you could run across it in 10 minutes and so the mountains feel like they're like coming out of your toes it's just like zinc like, yeah here they all are it's like within reach mm-hmm. phys- physically and so it's totally. hard not to like you look at the tetons and you're like oh that looks awesome but man that is a long walk <laughs> yeah we're here it's it's different you can just take the tram right up yeah so cool um the next thing i want to dive into is the discourse yeah how and why did you start that I started it during COVID. And what is it actually? The di- yeah. <laughs> um, I call it like the online campfire is the best way I've been able to explain it. Like I am very obsessed with the art of storytelling, specifically through writing. And I personally made it in a way for myself. I felt so constrained by Instagram. And I think Instagram is awesome and has its place. But the word count kills me. And I think it's just... It's a cool platform, but it's not a platform for everything. And I needed a platform for all my thoughts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's too many of them. And so I'm, and I also wanted to have like, I feel what's cool about storytelling is like, when you tell me your story, then I see you as a human. And when I look at, for instance, Instagram, which I'm trying to be better at not picking at, but like even how it's laid out. So there's a word count, but also when you look in order to write something, it's a comment. And a comment is way different than a conversation. Mm. And I think if everyone's just commenting back and forth, (laughs) I think we all know how unproductive that is. Where discourse, like 
the word itself is about like going back and forth and meeting another person as who they are and as who I am. And so that's what I wanted to see is like, can we create something media? I'm all for like, my job is about creating content and media, but I wanted it to have a depth that I couldn't find and a connection that I couldn't find. I mean, we were all just yelling at each other for two years. It was like kind of ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and so I created the discourse, which is was supposed to be this or is this online campfire where I share a story and equally so an also a writing prompt because I'm a big believer that everyone can write. And sometimes you just need to like have something nudging you and helping you. I think the first prompt was like, tell me about your school lunch. And it was awesome. The essays that people sent back in because everyone had a school lunch like yeah mine was top ramen it was bad cup of noodles you know like yeah. or someone else had like the sandwich with the crust cut off and like a love letter from their mom and it could tell you so much about like how you were raised and who you are just what you ate every day at school yeah but because everyone had it it's this great unifier and less divisive and so that's how the discourse works like I send it tries to be weekly, but it's not possible for my brain to put that out. Um, but a few every month. The goal is always like four or five a month. And also people write based on the prompts and they send them in as well. And it's all on the site. And it's awesome. People, I think I just love seeing what other people write and how other people write as well. Yeah. And it also has elevated... the way I think and the content because you're like if someone writes in a really deep story about themselves like I'm motivated to do the same yeah and all of a sudden I'm having like way more interesting conversations and I'll have back conversations like they have a personal email account to me and I get to know these people that I wouldn't have gotten to know before on like a really rich level yeah and I feel like that just everything's elevated the connections what we're talking about, the humor, yeah, the sadness, like it's all just there. It's been awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's uh it's one of my absolute favorite moments when I get a discourse email. I'm like, ooh, stop everything. Oh. Get my cup of tea and I'm gonna like take some really dedicated time to sit down and read it. I never graze it. I'm always like well, first of all, you're an incredible writer. So that makes Thanks. it really good. But it's it's uh to me it's like and we've totally had this conversation about Instagram is so surface level. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, you're not getting into the discourse. But I feel like what you're doing is building this community online. Yeah. Um, and But you're having this like more in-depth conversation with people. And how do you value that as an athlete? Because as you mentioned, like we're so valued on metrics and yeah. numbers these days, which feels disheartening because we're more than an athlete. And, and and even last night I had a conversation with someone that was like, I love getting to know the intricacies of all these different athletes because you're so forward facing as a skier or you're so defined by your professional athletic pursuit. But more often than not, we have so many more layers to us mm -hmm. than what that is. And it might take a little bit longer for people to pull that out of you because that's so forward facing. And I feel like that's the easiest thing for someone to come and approach you and talk about your professional skiing career. Yeah. What's your plans for next year? What'd you do last year? How was your season, right? But there's so much more in depth to these people. And and I think too, I think it's a shame 
that we've gone so like valuing these numbers and metrics yeah and i think it's really powerful and beautiful and better for mental health to value other things in our life and i hope that society flips a little bit yeah. more and especially in our careers and i hope that first of all go subscribe to the discourse <laughs> and like check it out because it's amazing um but i would like to see like your sponsors and other sponsors really value that and lift that up yeah i feel like you are such an artist in what you do and so thoughtful and intricate and and you put it out there to the world whereas like yeah if i write an instagram caption like sometimes i'm like what's like a cool thing how can i make this sound cool like a quick little sentence because yeah. i just want to get it out and off my plate the one thing i love about instagram is like i love photography yeah so i love yours are <laughs> i'm working on it <laughs> um, but to share a story through images is also something that i think is cool so i do appreciate that aspect but like well and that was like the I think what I tried to say before, like, that is Instagram. That was the root of right. Instagram was photos. And that's why I'm like, Instagram should stay and it should stay as photos because people like you and your boyfriend and, like, all, Leslie and all these photographers, like, I just have to look at their photos and I actually don't even have to read their caption. And that's where I'm, like, stopped. Yeah. And I think it is. It's just, like, let's let Instagram live as the place where photos are shared and right. videos. And then let's create some other platforms where other things can like share and live that have where the medium and the platform work together yeah yeah something different it's yeah. a different take but now the photos are like drop dead like oh yeah you can't get any i mean there's no engagement with photos on yeah. instagram so i'm like whoa what's next like yeah very inspired about your what you're doing because Thanks. i think it is so valuable and i think that when i think about athletes that sell meat products it's it's very rarely through the, the amount of likes that they get on Instagram yeah. for some post it's it's totally much more related to how much I feel connected to them and like if you told me what your favorite ice tool was I would go and buy that <laughs> immediately um if a friend that I mountain bike with all the time tells me the best chamois that's the one I'm gonna buy yeah but and 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 there are like I'll admit I, I buy stuff for climbing from Emily Harrington sponsors because I'm like they support her and I'm yeah. super fired up like athlete marketing definitely works in that way um but I think there's more to it and for I think sure. it would be and it would be advantageous for people in these companies to recognize that and celebrate that more yeah it's like the false god of data yeah and I think too it it's a waste of stories like there's mm. the people are interesting the trips are interesting it can't be summed up so quickly sometimes yeah and so quickly both in like the length of whether it's a post or a film but also sometimes you need times to process it yeah and I feel like it'd be so interesting for instance to go back and do a voiceover of a trip you did like five years ago and mm. what your thoughts are now versus what your thoughts on it were then and like how that trip changed you, but how it took five years for you to realize that that trip changed you. Right. Like the speed, I'm frightened by the speed and at which like things have to come. Yeah. And so it means a lot that you said you pause because I like the idea that I can like through writing stop time. Yeah. And you kind of dip into a different place. Totally. I think most good things come from the slow process. Yeah like slow food 
<laughs> growing your own. Yeah. Or like um, circularity within design, like, or with construction and using refurbished things. Like it takes so much time to deconstruct something but keep it intact, and it's so much more thoughtful rather than just ripping the plywood off the inside of your house. Yeah. If you're going to reuse that, it needs to be intact. There's a reason why it's more expensive and it takes more time. But if we rush through things and make things really cheap and easy, like that's uh, cringe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What, uh, like, did you go to school for writing at all? No. No. I think I'm a good writer because I read too much. (laughs) (laughs) You are a bookworm. I have a bookworm and it's hindered my social life sometimes. But yeah, I think I've always written I've had journals since I was a kid Mm -hmm. and I think my writing got better through reading better writers yeah and I think that's all it really takes is a lot of time with a book (laughs) what's your goal with writing um big goal or specific goals yeah I mean I don't want you to give everything away but (laughs) (laughs) I mean and for me it's such a personal thing it helps me explore I like write to figure out what I don't know mm-hmm. every time. Yeah. Like if I don't understand the emotion I'm having or the experience I just had, if I write, I feel like I figure it out. Like I think it's really cool and kind of like witchcrafty. Like it's fun. Sometimes I'll sit there and write and I find that I can't lie if I'm writing. Right. Like if I say like, how do I feel? I like my hand will tell me exactly how I feel. Um, and in that way, I think it also connects me as a human to other humans. And mm-hmm. so for me, writing also is like, what do I want to know? But also, how do I want to know someone else? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm currently working on a book, which is so hard. <laughs> but it's been awesome, too. Yeah. And yeah, that's my goal for the year is to get this thing done. What's uh, You mentioned it when we were out for our lovely yearly ski tour in Tahoe but you're going to a workshop or like it's a writing residency okay yeah um and I just got the official acceptance last night which I'm psyched it's kind of like jail for creatives (laughs) (laughs) or like prison is the best way to define it because you get like a room and a workspace and I'm going to one called U-Cross in the middle of Wyoming and it's for any artist so composers playwrights painters, ballerinas, writers, anyone artistic, photographers. And it's essentially giving you that uninterrupted space. So you get a room and a studio space, and then they drop, this is where the prison part comes in, they like drop you your breakfast and lunch outside your door every day. So you're like fully just with your thoughts. And then you, your requirement is to go to dinner with the other writers like artist residencies mm-hmm. every night, which sounds awesome. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to meet a, like get out of your head people. and yeah, meet new people. Yeah. Um, but mostly it's, there's a lot of residencies all over the world. And I think it's so cool that people, they're all mostly nonprofits or foundations. Mm. And it's people that believe that you need time and space to create good art. Yeah. And they provide it for artists. Yeah. And I'm psyched. <laughs> I've read that a lot about writers that are working on books. Like they will go to a log cabin in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. just to focus. Yeah. I need it because what people don't tell you is like you throw away 50, 75% of the writing that you do. Mm -hmm. And it takes like a bunch of babbling 
to get like one good sentence. Right. And so, you know, there's that thing where like, oh, if you wrote five pages a day by the end of the year, you would have a full book. But that's just like not actually true. Totally. (laughs) Because you're going to throw away most of those pages. And I find that my best writing comes like hour six, for instance. Wow. And rarely ever do I have a six hour time break totally to do that <laughs> so yeah I've never sat down yeah. and for six hours straight <laughs> that's like honestly one of the other hard parts about writing a book is I like to move mm-hmm. and I am sitting so much and you're just like oh this is hard yeah and then it just reminds me like most of the world sits most of the developed world sits all day and like that could not be good for anybody right. I mean we know it's not good but like now I really know it's like so gnarly yeah And I find too, like having those long days out in the mountains, especially when you're like not in cell phone service and, or maybe it's weeks in the mountains or Mm -hmm. even a few days like that allows my mind to get more creative. Yeah. And that time and space, like in the ski industry, like often for me, like basically I'm just now starting the editing process of the movie that we worked on last year. And as a director, I'm very much involved in that process. So it takes up a lot of time and space and creative energy to do that. However, my proposals to do trips and projects for next year are due right now. Yeah. And so I'm like, whoa, I just need to breathe for a second mm-hmm. and like think about this so that I can come up with something that's meaningful or whatever it is, rather than just like, here's an idea, I'll go with that and yeah. pitch that. Like there's, yeah, that time and space is so, I don't know, we miss it a lot. Uh, all the time yeah I think it's the speed in which we currently operate in life will be a disservice to us in the long run yeah like a hundred percent we don't even give things enough time to like work yeah (laughs) you know yeah to catch on to work themselves out whether that's like political social design content yeah it's too fast it's all too fast and I think that's why I love the mountains is you're free from input in a way Mm -hmm. like I'm observing the world but I'm not getting inundated with anything Mm -hmm. too loudly like nature is so soft yeah in the way it like shows you its beauty a lot of the times yeah and I feel like that's nice on the brain (laughs) taking a moment to thank Sierra Nevada for supporting the show couple of new brews in the mix right now the atomic torpedo and the tropical little thing both IPAs with so much flavor it's summertime and my favorite bevy from Sierra Nevada is the wild little thing I was first turned on to sours on a trip to Vermont and have since been in search of a canned version that I love and this one hits the mark It's my go-to summer sour. I love it, I buy it, and I come back for more. Additionally, I've been really feeling the hop splash, which is a sparkling hop water. While I love a beer after a ride, while wrenching on my bike or a casual at the beach, I've been supplementing with the hop splash, and it's such an enjoyable flavor and a nice way to mix things up. Huge fan of this family-owned company, as they're always forward-thinking, ahead of their time, and they serve up some of my favorite beers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yesterday I did a hiking photo shoot, And, um, it was, the day turned out completely different than I would have imagined. But when I'm here in Sham, oftentimes I'm like, I just want to go climbing and do super rad stuff. And I was kind of like, oh, I'm doing like hiking photo shoots. It's like pretty mellow. But what I gained from it was far more than like I anticipated. And that was like a nice reminder too of like, 
going back to risk tolerance even like moving slowly with a bunch of really close friends through the mountains through a beautiful space is like so inspiring also and and so joyous and free and uh yeah I just it was really cool I didn't feel like it was a wasted day by any means it was like really really awesome actually yeah do you have anything else you want to talk about Recent obsession with road biking. With my new road biking obsession? Yeah. I don't... I mean, I've always hated on mountain biking. Not my mountain biking friends. I love them. You included. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> my boyfriend, my brothers. <laughs> but I brought my road bike when I first moved to Europe. And I had two bad crashes in Innsbruck because they have these, like, crazy train systems in the city. Oh. And I got... It's really easy to fall into them because the road biking paths, like, cross them a lot. Oh, so then I, like, put the bike away. I was like, this thing is dangerous. And I'm so glad I didn't bring it back to the States because I, this winter, a dear friend of mine, Matt Sharkey, who I worked with at the North Face, invited me to do a loop around Annecy. And they have this beautiful bike path. And the lake is, like, turquoise, shiny blue through the mountains. It's awesome. And it was this freedom from the stress I was having around skiing and avalanche risk tolerance which is Chamonix is a hard place when you want to like scale it back so I like fell in love with my bike and I've been biking a ton and my Instagram feed is I call it a peloton now like it's just full of biking influencers yes and, like, professional <laughs> cyclists and it reminded me that there's so many ways to move your yeah. body and I think for so long especially after David died I was like I have to succeed in skiing because it's all I had left, which is untrue. I have like community and family and love and so much left. But I like really held on to like succeeding in skiing as being a way to like conquer my grief, which turns out you can't conquer. You just survive it. And yeah, biking became, I think for so long because of that, I was like, I'm going to climb and ice climb and do these big north walls and ski and everything even going to the gym, like all of it's just going to be towards skiing. And that made skiing less fun. Like mm-hmm. that's that pressure I put on skiing was too much. And with biking, I just get to bike. Yeah. And it was like this huge unlock of like, oh, I can just move my body in a new way or like pickleball. Like you can just move your body and it's fun. And I am trying to be really conscious of like not approaching biking like I approach everything else. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm just going to get on my bike and go tell I'm too tired and then I'm gonna go home or like stop at the coffee shop or make lists of places in Europe that I want to see and I'll see it by bike and it's been awesome and so I'm cool. obsessed with it and I love it yeah <laughs> and I'm psyched I get to go see the tour de France next month <gasps> and my team manager at Smith was like hey I saw I mean I know you're really into biking these days would you want to go ride in one of the cars and I, you know like I sometimes feel like I can try to pretend to be cool but I was just like so uncool about it I was, oh my god yeah yeah like just sign me up what that day sure yeah I'm free I have no idea if I'm free but yeah, yeah definitely we'll make it happen so yeah I'm psyched I think it's been like such a fun thing to explore yeah and such a reminder that there's like so many ways to live life yeah when you're riding in that car will you be like in the peloton with everyone I think oh so oh my gosh that is I don't know. so cool yeah I'm like so because we listeners should know that we both just watched Unchained and yeah. <laughs> like, so 
so hooked on the Tour de France. I mean, that thing is crazy. Yeah, yeah, big time. I love that. Um, I could take note on not approaching biking in the way that I approach everything in life, too. Because <laughs> I can get really it's hard. With it. Yeah, yeah, but it's so cool to move. Yeah. Like, human power movement to me is, like, the coolest thing. Yeah. And how much distance you can cover and you elevation can you can go so gain. far. Yeah. And the biking's, like, such a nice mix between, like, the speed of running and the speed of a car. Because yeah. I feel like I'm, with running, I just still can't go that far. But with biking, I can go really far. But when I'm going through these, like, picturesque, like, cobblestone, quaint little French villages, I can see it. Like, I can, like... I'm not going so fast that it's blur versus yeah. like in a car, you're just like cruising by yeah. and you're like right on the street and you're like seeing these people like drinking their coffee and looking at people's flowers. It's like such a, I don't know, fun way to explore Europe. Ah, so cool. If there's one thing that you can look back in your life and be super proud of, what would it be? Uh, my friendships, I think. But more, I think I'm just really grateful for my friendships yeah maybe that's where the pride comes from yeah I just like even when we were hiking the other day and I feel like we don't know each other that well but I was just like man I have so many amazing humans in my life and I feel really lucky yeah and stoked about that yeah I think that's amazing and I think that you should be really proud of your friendships (laughs) from what I've observed on the outside I always think of our relationship as like fascinating to me actually because we haven't spent that much time together and we've skied once together, right? I think so. And But there's this like literal magnetic for me pull towards you as a human of someone who like is so intriguing and thoughtful and we can have these really philosophical conversations without knowing each other that well. Yeah. And... Like when I, I don't know, when I think like when you were coming to Tahoe and I was like, I have to make space and time to go and like have more in-person time with Hadley because those moments have always meant so much to me. Like there's so much more depth there for me with you. And, um, but I don't think I have too many people in my life that like, I consider you like a, a, like kind of a close friend, even though we haven't had that much time together. And it's this, yeah, I can't really describe it. It's like, fascinating to me yeah so thank you for that right back at you it's been beautiful (laughs) and like you've really opened up my mind and made me think more through your writing and through our conversations about how we can be more intentional with our time and energy and approach to these different pursuits in life oh yes it's really cool thank you so much for joining me today yeah this is nice